And he cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth. And when he cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Kingdom come. Welcome to Geek Fights. I'm Mike Ortiz. With me as always is Mr. Damon Shaw. Damon, what are we fighting about tonight? Uh, we're we're not fighting. It's a comic book club. We're gonna yeah, I know. I think I do that same joke every time, don't I? Uh, I don't know. I think that might have been the first time you've done that. No, I did it on the Smallville one. You I did? think every time I host, I make the, or I, every time I do the intro, I make the same exact joke. Well, seeing as it's only been three times, that that works out. But no, I've done ones without you, and then you just say nothing. It was three times. Anyway, I, so what are we anyway. talking about? We're talking about Kingdom Come. Um, it's one of the greatest comic books of all time. See, that was me saying something briefly about it. Uh, and we've got a, a plethora of people here with us. Uh, I'm going to go with the person who is technically farthest from... Oh, no. Not the farthest. Second farthest. Karen. Say hello, Karen. Hello. What, what this you... is my first time reading Kingdom Come. Um, it's actually the first Superman comic I've ever read, or Wonder Woman, and let's just call it, like, all these superheroes that I'm too intimidated to read their actual comics, it was pretty much my first. Thank you very much, Karen. Now to the farthest person, way that would be Anthony. Anthony, say hello. Hey, guys, how's it going? Um, just recapped on the, uh, Kingdom Come, I got it when it first came out. Loved it, loved the artwork, loved the story. Thank you there, Anthony. Mr. Gill! Hi. Yeah, uh, Kingdom Come, read it when it first came out, issue by issue. Bought the uh, you know, hardcover slipcase edition many years later. And, uh, read it, you know, not like every year, but every once in a while, and it, it never failed me. It's a, it's a really, good, really good comic. Rock and roll. See, we're getting even closer to us. That will be you, Mr. Leo Perez. Hey, everyone. Um, I read Kingdom Come when I when it first came out in trade, and I really think it's an essential piece to any comic library or trade library or hardcover library that you know you guys can get. So I love it. Thank you very much, Leo. Mr. Brian Townsend, just down the road from us. Yep, Kingdom Come is a damn fine, funny book. See, there we go. That's how that's how we started there, Mike. Uh, you, you, it's it's your show. Take the ring. Uh Well, uh, I I actually loved it. This is one of my favorite uh, comics uh, of all time. I I certainly put it up there with uh, Dark Knight and Watchmen for me, uh, especially in terms of being one of the best. <laughs> I guess mainstream superhero books ever. Uh, though I read it when it uh, when it came out, um, and uh, my view on it has really has kind of changed and evolved some. So there, there I, I I have strange not problems with it, but strange questions about it now that I never had before. So I'm looking forward to talking about it uh, some as we go here. Um, last time we did this, we we started with kind of a. A going through the book uh, with a brief synopsis and, and you know page or chapter by chapter, um, but you know I think all that's going to come out. This is actually a fairly short book, so let's just jump in it 
And uh, who wants to say anything? I, I started off with, I think it's the best mainstream superhero book of all time. And one of the best Superman stories ever. I I would have to say that all around, it is probably one of the best stories ever. Uh, with the artwork just being completely beautiful. The the story itself is just, it's awesome. I'm not a big DC fan at all. Um, I only own, I own like a few DC books, you know, just by some of my favorite you know, writers here and there, but I have to say that it actually made me love a lot of characters I didn't give a shit about before. So that's pretty much my you know, input on it. Okay. Uh, you know, I... I... Personally, you know, fuck, I, I've said it before we started recording. I'm going to say it again now. It is the greatest comic book story of my generation. And by that, I mean a person who started really reading and getting into comics in the 90s. Uh, I didn't really pay any attention to the stuff in the 80s. So Dark Knight and Watchmen, hell, I didn't read Watchmen until right before the movie came out. Like I, I tried, and I could never get into it. And, and both of those books are rather wordy and somewhat inaccessible. Uh, and I'm not saying that they, they are completely, but they are very, very wordy reads. This this is not wordy at all. Uh, there's a lot of storytelling in the artwork by Alex Ross, as well as just the the briefness of some things that uh, Mark Wade wrote into the story. It's 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 amazing. I love the shit out of it. Um, how about you, there, Karen? Um, I was well coming into this not being familiar with all these characters from pop culture, but, well, not all of them, I still am not quite sure who the guy with the lightning bolt is um, that kept saying Shazam. That's for me. Um, who? I said that's blasphemous. You should know that person. It's Captain Marvel, also known as Shazam. People call him Shazam all the time. Okay. Well, I... I was struck, I think, the artwork's seemed like it was more paintings than inking and shading and coloring in classic comic book style. I guess I'm coming off of the the comics I've really read, I guess, with the OMAC, um, which is definitely a different style than this. Okay, Sorry? What was, what was the style you were referring to? OMAC. The style OMAC. Uh, yes, OMAC. The new OMAC series OMAC or, the, or the classic series? The new one. That's a good solid Keith Giffen style. I like it. I, I liked it too, but I was just in particular, it felt like these were very photorealistic paintings. With, so the word bubbles almost seem completely out of place. Um, other than that, the story, I really like it thematically. Um, I completely suspend my disbelief at the weird parallel aging of superheroes. But I liked um, Wonder Woman as she seemed to be portrayed rather realistically for how women age. Thank you very much, Karen. Uh, Anthony. Well, actually, there's, there's one thing I wanted to uh, just sort of toss out to everybody, uh, some, based on something you said, Damon. 
And uh, and actually, it's interesting, Karen, uh, talking about this because you know, having having come to this without the knowledge that most of us had of these characters, um, what does everybody think about uh, Norman McKay? He's the main character of this story, and he's intended to be uh, our eyes. And everything that needs to get explained, the specter just explains right to him. Um, do you think that was the, the, a, an effective device? Do you think it was necessary? Um, and even how it, how it connects to the theme. What do you think? Uh, Anthony, go ahead. I think that it was a, a very effective uh, tool, especially uh, since there were so many different characters, some new returning characters, like uh, I think it was Dr. Midnight, Sandman, characters I didn't even know of. Having that person that uh, be the, the everyman that can to play the role of the, uh, of the reader who doesn't know what's going on, who, can't, who needs to explain to him, was very effective, especially when you find out that he was the, the pastor of, I believe it was Sandman, and that you know, he's interacting with the spectra. It was, it was just kind of awesome and, and amazing how they put all of that together to give us a, a very uh, cohesive story. Uh, Mr. Gill. Yeah, I think that as a narrative tool, he was useful. He wasn't necessary, though. I don't feel that he was necessary. I think the story, if you're a comic book reader, you know, you could have just read what was happening amongst the heroes and still gotten a really great story out of it, but it made for a much more dramatic and and, and pathetic uh, tale by giving us, you know, I didn't really need him, but you know, it was useful. And to have the Spectre explain, you know, straight up, this is what's happening. And then at the end, the little twist they gave was like, you have to pass the judgment. You know, there's that frozen moment when he's like, but I'm just a man, but you're just a reader. And this whole thing is it's a moral, it's a story about morals. Like, it's about the extraordinary beings still having the same confrontation with moral dilemma that we have. And so... You know, he was he was forced to make that choice after all of this weird, fantastical stuff he'd seen and witnessed, and the horror and the brilliance. And that, I mean, that was kind of nice. So I mean, I, I guess in that sense, he was necessary to get to that point to remind the reader that you know you're reading a work of fiction. What decision would you make? And and here's what we think the every man would feel about this grandiose. But do you uh, think that he's necessary? He's necessary. Um, not just from the point of view of the reader as, you know, as us being a, an objective observer on a fictional world, but necessary to be the perspective of real human beings. I mean, even though Batman presents it as the superpowered beings versus the, uh, the non-superpowered beings, Batman has superpowers. He's got a fucking suit of armor, you know, that he's basically Iron Man in this, even though it's presented uh, as you know, Batman defines it as heroes versus not heroes. They're still not human, even though they may not have uh, extraordinary abilities. They're still gods as well. And Norman's the only real common person, except for like the UN people. Um, mm-hmm. So, do you think that that perspective could actually be? That's why they look so kind of godlike and and frankly terrifying. Um, you know, much like uh, just like and Alex Ross doing you know that sort of visual style like uh, like in Marvels, which makes them even more more terrifying. See that that what you're talking about was not in any way how the book impacted me. I I will go on probably being as record as being the most um, DC guy is probably on the person on the panel and and somebody who didn't need uh, Norman McKay's character. 
I knew what was going on. I understood most of the references. You know, I picked out things that, you know, were really subtle um, stuff that was going on in the background. And I never, in terms of reading the book, didn't identify with the hero characters as people. So the whole Norman McKay thing for me was just like, oh, okay, sure, uh, whatever. He, he was pretty much pointless. He was, he, his whole story arc, I suppose, was my least favorite aspect of the book because I, even though you've got all these people with all of these terrible powers, I, they never come off as anything to me as heroes unless they're not. Unless they're not, you know, as long as they're actually trying to do things that are good, they come off to me as heroes. And as soon as they start popping people's heads off, then they kind of come off as villains. And that's about it. I enjoyed having the the narrator character. Um, I had actually no idea who Spectre was. Um, To me, he was just this sort of shadow person leading, being the guide for the everyday person. Um, And I thought it was very helpful to have that stuff explained. Yeah, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I, I was going to say, yeah, I, I think he, he's actually, you know, for, for people who know comics, you're absolutely right. He is completely unnecessary except for the very end of the, the story. But for a, a story to become bigger than just for us comic book readers, like we, we just did Infinity Gauntlet, which was great for comic book readers, but somebody coming in off the street couldn't read that and understand what was going on. They would have needed a you need some kind of Norman character to elevate it above what it is. Even like, uh, even Watchmen, it's somewhat like that. It has a narrator of, uh, who the fuck is the narrator in Watchmen? But it has somebody telling you who the thing, who people are and what things are. And it has uh, an accessibility to people who don't know comics at all. Don't know any of this stuff. So I, I, I think it's completely necessary. Uh, Leo, you were going to say something. Yeah, I was just going to agree, and also um, I was going to say, I mean, you got to think of it also in in a sales, I guess, point. He's necessary because I think what Alex Ross had just done, before this he had done Marvels, and then he he was pretty much known for Marvels and painting the Crisis cover for, or the big Crisis piece, right? I don't know if he had done anything else that I can remember. And I hey, think it was that, just Marvels at this point. Marvels at this point, I think, yep. I think like, oh, great artwork, let's follow this guy, you know, and I think a lot of guys that followed him might not have been as big as DC fans, and I think that really helped him to have the Norman character there kind of explaining stuff, and, and you know, I, I think the end was a bit cheesy with him talking down Superman from going crazy, but but um, I think in the end, I think overall, it, it just works well, and I think he, he's an enduring type of character, so, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I got every reference in here, and I, I understood all of it, but I still think Norman. That's why not, not in terms of Norman being there for the reader. He's there certainly for the re- new readers, people who may not may not know things. Uh, you know, there was a time when that was handled by kind of omniscient narrator caption boxes, and here right. the Spectre is basically doing that. He's just explaining it to Norman instead of 
the uh, the narrator explaining it to us and, and in panels where you don't see that um or you just see the narration you could easily just interpret it as that kind of a classic comic thing but i i think really you know for me one of the the points of it and the whole point of the ending i mean the ending was you know when superman says we have to stop being apart from you we have to stop being gods and they take off their masks and the basic you know premise as alex ross explained it was after this they are not superheroes anymore they are clark kent they are batman or they are bruce wayne they don't wear costumes they don't wear masks they don't physically separate themselves from us so that they don't inadvertently kind of morally separate themselves the way that they had and i think norman is kind of necessary to like i said be the lone real human being who are the ones who are actually in trouble the ones superheroes are supposed to be saving instead of fighting amongst each other he's the one time that that voice is really heard um and and i think his the the idea of making him the, the preacher so that he has some some sort of moral authority um you know especially when we're talking of the, the specter that is literally an agent of god um you really get into kind of some ideas of about you know are they are they superior to it? i mean they they are certainly they have more they're more powerful than us but are they morally superior to human beings or as you see, do they just kind of fall prey to the same problems and the same issues? So I, th- I think Norman is necessary uh, from a narrative standpoint, just because otherwise this that's what makes this something more than a fight between superheroes, which is, you know, a lot a lot of comics do that. Maybe not as well drawn as this, but superheroes fighting superheroes is as is, is old as at least Marvel Comics. Um, but I think the how a normal human being fits into that scenario is what makes this unique uh, as a story. Uh, I'm going to say something. Page 114, if you've got the trade paperback, on top of what looks like, uh, what is that? Looks like uh, Lincoln's uh, memorial. There are two people fucking. Just going to throw that out there. <laughs> Mike? Wait, wait, you 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 come up with good questions. What's the next one? Uh, the, actually, this, now this one, I guess, uh, I I mean, I'm curious to <laughs> see Karen's answer for this because she wouldn't, you know, just to see her interpretation on this. Uh, with the lone exception of Captain Marvel, every character in here, as far as I can tell, is redesigned from certainly where they were at the time, but even kind of away from their sort of classic iconic. There's no iconic belt tonight. Um, look. Uh, what do you think of those looks? What do you think of those redesigns? I love the Superman. I think the the stylized S and the darker colors uh, look fantastic. But uh, what do other people think? Um, what I like the most was uh, what they did with. I'm sorry, someone talking. Yeah, you guys were talking at the same time. Go ahead, Anthony. Karen, you can go right after him. Uh, the one I liked the most was the Flash, and I, I thought it was kind of unique that in this, this might be the first time I've ever seen him having the ability to fly. I like that they went old school with it old school with it, with the uh, helmet, with the wings. But at the same time, I'm really pissed off that Alex Ross got his way and made Hal Jordan the Green Lantern. It was Alan Scott. Yeah, Yeah, it was Alan Scott. Really? Yeah, Yeah, it was was Alan Scott. No, it's not Hal Jordan. If you remember, there's parts where you can't take wood onto his space station. Well, at the end, he's part of of Congress or the Senate or whatever, and it says right there, it's Scott. Wow. Okay, well, I was 
I stand corrected. But anyway, that was going to be my rant against Heat again. <laughs> oh, they! I think Alex Ross. Uh, there are designs for a Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, um, and uh, they uh, that I just think overall they were. I mean, they they resisted Kyle because this was supposed to be old school characters. Um, so they they wound up going with Alan as kind of a nice compromise because he was still in continuity, still kind of a Green Lantern at the time. Um, but uh, in this the context of the story. Uh, Kyle Rayner gave his Green Lantern ring to Jade, and Jade is the actual right. Owen Green Lantern or Owen Power Ring Green Lantern on this uh, on this Earth. But uh, Karen, go ahead. I honestly didn't notice much of the character redesigns because to me, they are if they are recognizable, they are that character. Um, I don't I haven't seen I guess enough. Variations. I mean, certainly Superman's got like the underoos thing, um, which I know is different um, than. So I guess the costumes I know are the ones from the movies. So it wasn't nipple Batman, and it wasn't um, shiny pants Wonder Woman. It's probably the worst answer you were hoping to hear. No, no. Yeah. It, it, it was actually, actually, that's what makes sense because without knowing them, you still knew who all of them were. Right. Because, and that, that to me is, I think, one of the successes of, of these designs is they are not the, the iconic looks in the sense that they're not the, the ones that maybe are from merchandising or from movies, but they're still all very recognizable. I think they are iconic looks. They're just slight variation, which is, I think, where, where that comes in is the iconic being they represent themselves as the essence of themselves, and they have that. That's sweet as hell. Yeah, I, I, I kind of, I strongly agree with what Karen is saying in terms of what visually one of the great things that Alex Ross did is that he just basically um, glommed onto the essence of the characters and and then redesigned them to bring that more to the fore. Like, the, the primary examples that come to mind are, like, um, The Flash, who, instead of becoming a guy in a, in a suit, becomes just like the living embodiment of speed. And the way that he's represented is the living embodiment of speed. And 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 uh, Power Girl, who you know keeps the classic her classic costume with the boob window, but becomes even the more living physically... embodiment of boob. Mm-hmm. The living embodiment of boob. Yes, and 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 she and she <laughs> becomes and she becomes that that whole you know that that whole aspect of her. Um, character which is this super powerful aggressive female aspect they ross redesigns her and brings that to the fore and she's still wearing the same suit but she looks more like power girl than she's ever looked before and a lot of the characters look more like themselves than they ever looked before and so because it is realistic painting style he actually makes them look realistically ridiculous, you know, like they're huge, but they're not, you know, they're not drawn badly. They're not, you know, a, a girl with a, 
with a waistline that's the size of my pinky finger and then gigantic boobs. Like, these are like big girls, like Power Girl and Wonder Woman. They are, they are broad and strong and like healthy brick houses. They're, they're the know? female equivalents to what, you know, Superman and, exactly. and other big physical characters. I mean, Superman is, is enormous in this, but. You know he's he's wearing a costume. He doesn't he's not doesn't look like like he's roided out. He just looks like a big fucking guy, like a big football player. Yeah, uh, the the most drastic redesign that nobody ever cares or talks about because nobody cares about the character is Hawkman. Uh, yeah, Hawkman. I was just thinking about that actually. Nobody talks about it. He uh, and he's a bird in this. Yeah, I got yeah. hawk on his head. Yeah. Um, is that not how Hawkman looks? Because that's how nope. I recognized him. I was like, dude, got a hawk on his head. Nope. Well, he, he's actually a hawk, and that, yeah. and I think that the Hawkman design goes right back to what I was saying. I think in that Hawkman is he's he's becomes this predatory thing from the sky. You know, it's just just the aspect of Hawkman's character that probably doesn't get played up enough in his books, which is probably why. Um, he doesn't hasn't had a successful book ever in a long time. Is that he's just this big fucking terrible guy who, at the end of the day, takes out muggers by hitting them in the head with a mace while moving at seventy miles an hour. Everybody who commits crime should be frightened of this guy <laughs> simply because, oh my God, the mace is coming. And 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 when Ross redesigns him. You really, for the, you know, for a, one of the few times you actually see this aspect of the character. And I, I don't know if you guys have the trade in front of you, but um, if you guys look at the part, it's towards the back where he's got um, each different crew, like there's the new heroes slash villains, and then Superman's crew, and then Batman's outsiders. And what I really like about Ross is that looking at them, you see Superman's crew, and they're all full of vibrant colors, and like you, like it just there's a lot of lights in there, and they all look shiny and bright. And the villain, he definitely used like a lot of just really good monochromatic, you know, tones in there, and grays and darks. But with Batman's Outsiders, you see a mixture of brights and darks, and because you're because he's unsure, because I just think. Alex Ross's artwork just translated so well, and even in things that you don't have to read, but you just see. And I think that's why this guy is seriously is, is and always will be one of the masters. It's funny. You, you, uh, go ahead. Oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I just think that it's just, I look at this and you turn the pages and you know exactly who the good guys are because of, you know, of the colors that they, that just bounces off of them. And I know that just sounds really crazy, but like, just turn the pages and and you just you see what stands out and well, what shouldn't stand out. Go it's ahead. funny you you mentioned good guys and Mike, we, we were talking about this before. Um, there aren't any villains in this world. This world has no villains. There there are none. The everybody that's in here are heroes, technically. They 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 they, they aren't traditional heroes. But they're technically heroes by virtue of are done because, well, Mike, you you say it best. Go ahead. Well, one of the 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 ideas um, I think that that was that was addressed in this book, uh, looking at when it came out, which was 1996, is there was a very specific 
commentary on uh, heroes of the time, of the 90s comics heroes, of Image. Um, And and one of the things that I think they were famous for saying was one of the problems that they had was you couldn't tell the heroes and the villains apart. And one of the things here is this next generation of heroes uh, is, is... it's the same sort of thing because there are no, there are really no super villains. Uh, the characters in here, even the ones that are kind of causing all this mass destruction, they're mostly heroes. There's really, you know, Parasite is in it, I guess, for a second, but the villains are all kind of laying low. The villains, you know, Luther and and Catwoman and all of them, they're not even in costume anymore. They're all just, they're not out doing their thing because the villains have kind of been beaten back and now the heroes have, they just fight amongst each other. Uh, which I think was kind of an interesting interpretation of of '90s comics, and certainly was was a, a very strong critique of that. Um, starting with that, what does everybody think about uh, about the critique and about um, whether or not you think it it does it still hold? Um, is it is it accurate? And uh, and how does it play out in the story? Well, uh, okay. Whether they call them villains or not, they know they're supposedly super heroes or something. They they they're essentially super dilettantes. But it, at the end of the day, um, it's it's like their powers are placing them in a position above society to the detriment of society. And whether just because they're not robbing banks and trying to you know take over countries doesn't make them not super villains. I know, like, you know, superhero, superheroism, it's, 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 you see the clash in, in, in what's been classically referred to as superheroics between, you know, the Superman crew and the Batman crew and the new hero crew. And, and, it, it, and, and, and I've said this a lot in other, you know, arguments that we've had that, there's a difference between being a superhero and being a paranormal, you know? So a lot of the guys, the new heroes, they, they have superpowers, but they stop being heroic and, and they actually start doing things that, you know, they scare people whose job it is just to commit crimes. And, and at that point, that's actually like a new level of supervillainy, whether you identify them as supervillains or not, at least that's my way of looking at it. Okay, uh, Anthony, anything? Um, I wanted to get more so into the story and as far as like the backdrop and the background of the comic book. I was rereading it over the last couple of days, and this this whole story just seems so reminiscent of Squadron, Squadron Supreme, right down to um, the fact that Batman, who was portrayed by Nighthawk in that series, was reluctant to get on board with Superman, a.k.a. Hyperion, um, his, his belief that um, he could bring uh, order and justice in, to the world. And it was just, just seeing uh, Superman round up the gang and Batman, uh, to his own extent, put together his own group to oppose them, which is so similar. And at the same time, a lot of people that I've, that I've been reading have made the same um, uh, comment that, you know, uh, that Kingdom Come was the basis for civil war, and I could see that as well. But, I mean, the main thing that, that I really take away from the overall story was that how they kept putting Superman and Batman at odds and how they showed these, these older uh, superheroes. And at the same time, they continued the, uh, the older uh, rivalries and their old personalities. 
Well, I, yeah, that's kind of interesting. I hadn't really made the connection about um, uh, Squadron Supreme before, uh, but I guess that would make a lot of sense because Squadron Supreme, you know, was intended to be Marvel's uh, not version, but certainly kind of uh, take on or, or uh, kind of I'm not parody, but, uh, but tribute to the Justice homage. League. Homage. So you know, taking them and and putting that, and yeah, I mean, that came out in, in 86 or 85 or so, at the same time as Watchmen. A lot of people talked about the similarities in the uh, in those two, uh, but Watchmen obviously not being a, a book in continuity. Um, and, and actually, this isn't in continuity technically either. I mean, this is set in the future. It's, a, it's an Elseworlds. Um, it, well, it's kind of... Well, that Supreme because that was its own universe. Right, but that was still an alternate universe. That was a parallel Earth. But this, at this time, nowadays, this uh, this universe is actually one of the fifty-two universes. But in its day, you know, there was only the one universe, supposedly, um, and set in the future, uh, much like you know. I always kind of looked at this as uh, the Dark Knight is is you know Batman's future story, uh, and maybe All Star Superman is Superman's. But this one is the this is the Justice League's Dark Knight. No, now, I would agree. Um, oh, go ahead. One, uh, one, one question, I, and, and we've talked a lot about how beautiful the artwork is. Do you think this would have worked uh, if it were a traditionally drawn book, uh, even even drawn by, you know, a great artist? Or what other artists do you think could have done this this justice? You know, Neil Adams is realistic. Uh, you know, for me, I don't think this works as well without Alex Ross, which is why I don't ever really want to see it turned into an animated movie. Uh, I agree. No, no, it doesn't work at all because I, I think everybody tries to forget uh, the kingdom. Uh, what came out a few years later when they tried to revisit yeah, it. Yeah, but that was just those were just bad. I know, but they they had some of the same characters, and when they were drawn by people as opposed to done in, in the uh, Alex Ross style, it just doesn't work as well. It just didn't. It's like uh, just from a visual standpoint, I couldn't get on board. And it didn't. It didn't even take the me reading the, the the stories, which were mostly horrible, to be like this is stupid. Like it, it was one of those things where without Alex Ross, I think this thing falls apart completely. But you could say the exact same thing without Mark Wade because you've got Earth X. Uh, you know, that's without Mark Wade, Earth X is not nearly as good as this. But I mean, yeah. even just as, in terms of a different style. I mean, if you wrote this in a different style, you know that it's not really. Even if Alex Ross had done this in a pen and ink style, would that have, uh, which he can do, which I've, you know he's, he's done before, um, would it have worked as well? And I, I don't think so. I think that it really needs the, the painted photorealistic style uh, to ground it as well as it is. See, I don't think so, only because um, what Mark Wade, uh, what, what, I think what Alex Ross really brings isn't the photorealism. It's he has a great sense of 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 drawing the epic scale. One thing about the stories that Alex Ross does, as opposed to other artists, and I think this is a lot of this is in play in the Kingdom, though I haven't seen much of it, is that the scope of the way he lays out the stories. It's like if you compare, uh, like 
if you, you want to use a, uh, another visual medium, most other comic book stories are like HBO cable, and an Alex Ross story is a 70-millimeter film with total surround sound. It's, it, it's, it's like a Kubrick film. It's, not just a, it's, like a, it's like a Cecil B. DeMille film. He really captures huge scale. And, and I think that's what um, that, uh, that allows, it, that, that creates the visual impact. I think that's his style. And there are other artists, not a lot of them working in American comics, that can handle that epic sense and that epic scale as well as, as Alex Ross presents it. I mean, there, there are a couple of people, you know, working in animation who I think can handle it. But that's because they're committed to the concept of of that feel and that grandeur, and because it gets really hard to do something that epic, tight and on a budget. I mean, it's like even if you like, if you've seen the the new Dark Dark Knight Returns animated, it has a lot of the look of the Miller work, but it doesn't have a lot of the pacing and it doesn't have a lot of sense of the grandeur because they're cramming so much into the in the hour and a half animated film. If they had expanded that into another longer film, then I think that would have translated well. And I think it could happen with a uh, uh, Kingdom Come film, but it's, but it's only if they give it time and only if they give it space. And then only if they find somebody who can handle the big, big, big crowd scenes. Because those big crowd scenes are totally what one of the things that makes makes that book unique. The, th- the thing is, comic book pacing is unfair because comic books pacing is as fast or slow as you want it to be. Because you, the reader, control the pace of it. So in an animated format, the director or the animator has to actually decide th- what the pacing is. And it's never going to be right for everybody. You just—it's almost impossible to do it because you know with Dark Knight, when you read Dark Knight, some people skip the new stuff. I know I skip the news new stuff because I read it once and I don't need it again. Like, and that makes the book move faster or slower. Um, although Alex Ross's artwork and the pacing is probably perfect, but I, some of that has to go to who's the letterer. Who does the lettering on this? I got this. Um, is it Todd Klein? Yes, Todd Klein. Some of some you know people give credit to the artist, but some of the times the pacing, at least especially for a comic book, is set by the 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 letterer and the positioning of where he puts those letters and how he decides to to place them in there. Sometimes the artist does it. Sometimes the letter does it. I don't know who did it in this case. Uh, but yeah, I, I, but, I'm, but I, I think one of the differences also is between Dark Knight Returns and uh, Kingdom Come is that Alex Ross's artwork definitely makes you look at every single panel. And I'm not going to crap on Frank Miller's drawings, but I just I that was definitely that book is all story, you know. Uh, and Kingdom Come definitely Alex Ross demands your attention with every panel. Um, and especially the way he draws uh, Superman and um, uh, Bruce Wayne, Batman, he, he, these are characters that clearly 
are very near and dear to his heart. Especially the Norm the Norman character is actually he drew that off of his father. Like his father was the model for uh, the Norman character, and uh, he has models for pretty much everyone else. But I know um, Bruce Wayne was modeled after Gregory Peck a bit, a bit, and uh, Superman off of George Reeves. So he uh, he definitely everything in this book. The artwork is near and dear to Alex, Alex Ross's heart as well. Yeah, actually, some of the additions even, because uh, he has a lot of his friends mm -hmm. uh, pose, and some of the additions will even have some of the uh, uh, the original photographs along with the photographs of, of his friends yeah. that he got. So, yeah, it's actually, uh, he uses a lot a lot Probably of very good photo reference. Azzarello is actually is Norman McKay, right? His father is Norman McKay. Yeah. Azarello and Jill Thompson are both yeah. uh, characters in here. Yeah. Mark Wade is in here. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, that, and that that really lends to the, the the strength of that photorealistic style. But uh, what we were talking about before we lost you, Karen, was uh, uh, but would the story work with another artist? Do you think uh, you, you could do this with somebody else, or is or the even art even if, if Alex Ross was drawing it in a traditional and, and line art style? In pen and ink, as opposed to painting it, because you said you were bothered by the fact that the the very traditional line drawing, even though they're I guess they're computer generated uh, word balloons, uh, you thought they didn't fit in the artwork very well. I think it, it felt, felt a little weird, like when you read one of those web comics that has pictures, like actual pictures, and has you know um, bubbles written in. Um, it was a little bit intrusive in that the story was almost told through the pictures. Um, and while I think thematically the, you know, the theme of bringing every person into it and letting the heroes be realistic rather than stylized uh, work. Um, so in some ways, Another style, and I guess what you mean by another artist, would probably poorly serve um, this particular story. Um, I also think, Damon, that you, you have it wrong with speed of how fast you read it versus pacing. Because pacing is a lot of how much story do you skip. Um, almost anything, you can speed up or slow down based on your own reading preferences, um, this does not have a lot of filler. Um, it skips quite a bit and expects you to catch up, and that's part of the reason why the point of view character is so important if you are not familiar with this universe is because it allows you to catch up. Also very interesting... I was going to say is that a lot of the set designs um, for this, the way that things are laid out, like I remember the scene um, when they're on the JLA satellite. The JLA satellite looks immense. It looks like, you know, Ross plays a lot in terms of, of perspective and, 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 and ambiance and setting. You know, he, he uses a lot of, of establishing shots that show a lot of space and a lot of the dialogue scenes, you know, the, 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 the figures aren't, aren't, aren't as emphasized. The environment, the figures in their environment becomes the whole 
you know, with the whole situation. And in standard comics, you focus on the figures, you focus on the dynamic figures, you know, there's, there are not a whole lot of artists in traditional comic style who, who make the environment so much of a character in the telling of the story as, as Alex Ross did. And so it's, uh, and so in terms of finding somebody else who could handle this or hand or adapting the story, um, to another medium, I really, I really, really think that a lot of it has to do less with Alex Ross's style as much as I do like Alex Ross's style as it does in terms of the techniques that were used to you to tell the story. If you've got somebody else who's competent, um, who can, who can, who can stylize characters in the same way that Alex Ross stylized characters, who makes the environment's characters as much as anything else or tries to, then I think, it, you know, you can have this kit this interpreted by other artists or in other mediums. Uh, Mr. Gale, you were going to say something? Yeah, no, and I agree with what Brian said. The thing is, it's not, it's not the actual art. I mean, the art is absolutely gorgeous, but I think that any number of very talented artists could, could have drawn this book, but you had to have his level of design and planning. Like, basically what he did was he created these rich histories, which, you know, hadn't happened yet. He, he did this huge homage to his Golden Age characters, and he does, like, generations, you know, children and grandchildren of the heroes. But he, he puts as much effort into it as, say, a big fantasy writer would put into, you know, a history of the kingdoms and the naming of kings and family trees and stuff like that. He really... You put all that into that. So even if you don't know, if you've only read the book for the first time, even if you don't know that there's, you know, Starfire and Dick Grayson's daughter, like those of us that were in the know, like you could see that and it made the whole world they created so much richer because of the design, not because of the actual, you know, pencil or, or paint drawing, but because of the thought that was put into it. Like normally, if you're going to write a comic book and say, come up with this, you know, with the design, and you got any old artist and they're going to you know, draw a sash here and a stripe there and a circle, whatever, you know, because it looks cool when they're drawing it. And But that was also one of the big things, like we said before, that they were making fun of, or not making fun of, but concerned with. Like the two types of villains in this book, you had your, your board of directors, big business, old school villains, all just in suits sitting around planning the demise of the superheroes. And then you had all those 90s heroes. I mean, there's specifically... When they were designing them, they said, you know, have this guy as though he were drawn by Ron Liefeld. And like Magog, and he's got the, the cable scar on his eye, and just these ridiculous pieces of armor and technology that was all the rage in the 90s for all these new heroes that were coming out at Image Comics and, and all these other companies. And they, you know, they were definitely making fun of that. And that design was just as important as the, you know, the, the simple design of you know, the generational story. And I think that that generational story really comes through. But I do I do believe that any number of decent artists could have drawn this book. It might not have sold as well. It might not have gotten the hype that it got. But at the time, there weren't a lot of artists that could have pulled it off. And I think that's what makes this book so good. Like whatever the best comic of the generation, as Damon was saying, like in 1996, there was nothing like this on the shelves. Marvel, yes, but it wasn't like this. You know, this was the. <laughs> I mean. I was never a big DC fan. I was always a fan and a big fan. But this just, I, I loved it. Like, I loved seeing all these characters and what they were doing. And, and it, was, it wasn't because it was beautifully painted. It was because it was beautifully thought out. Uh, also, it, also, the cinematic, oh, excuse me, aspect of it. Go ahead. Well, I, was saying, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, Brian, you know, for you, 
it, it really is that that scope and that that scale of the visuals uh which you think other people could could uh could bring to it and 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 Dave for you it's the kind of the the breadth and complexity of the world whereas for me like I I think there are a lot of artists that can that can do those things I mean certainly Neil Adams guys like Brian Hitch I think even Jim Lee are all guys who 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 can do that sort of of uh visual stuff uh you know maybe not to the level of detail here but even John Byrne uh, you know, has has done, uh, and, and George Perez uh, have done things of this sort of scale and this complexity and that sort of visual uh, visual depth. But for me, I think it just would not work as well for for the same reasons that the story doesn't work for me without without Norman. Is what what made it something uh, more interesting to me was not the the super aspect of it, but you know, seeing it through Norman's eyes. Uh, is is kind of made literal that you know if this were to happen in our world this is what these people would look like so that's just another way of of giving us a real human beings lens on this world is is in the visuals as well as is narratively with norman um you know if this looks like a movie uh, and and even as realistic as Neil Adams and Brian Hitch are, they don't ever look like movies. I was gonna say it not only looks like movies like a movie because of the way that Alex Ross handles it is his his style and painting, but it's the way that they lay things out. And and I and I agree with how the cinematic aspect. Um, and I don't think Ross gets enough credit for the storytelling. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. And and I and I agree with what Dave was saying. I totally I totally agree that a lot that Kingdom Come is like what if Stanley Kubrick made a comic book. It's really that level of just layers upon layers. It's like if Francis Ford Coppola made a comic book. It's just that you know. Layered upon layers, of the, no, it has to look this way as opposed to this way. The characters have to be designed this way as opposed to this way. And the level of, of, of detail and detail in costuming and lighting and set, it's really like looking at a motion picture. And, and so, you know, like, and so if you, if you get somebody who looks at this, looks at doing a comic book from this perspective, then maybe you could do it. I actually think it's more likely to happen now than it was in 96. Somebody made a really good point that, he, that Alex Ross was the only person doing this then. But now that you've had all of these highly successful superhero movies, people are used to seeing superheroes in the cinematic light now. And now this story becomes, you know, um, I was like, oh, yeah, this is the superheroes get that big scale screen thing now. So. You know, so now this is. Well, at the time when the story came out, it was revolutionary. Now it's kind of becoming, you know, the standard for how superheroes are supposed to be presented. Also, um, I think that when this book came out in '95, '94, a lot of the art, a lot of artists back then, almost had the same style. I mean, when Jim Lee and everybody else left Marvel, um, they replaced Jim Lee with. Oh, one of the Cubits on X Men, and it it still followed the same style. And I think what Alex Ross did here is that he set a new bar. 
he set with something completely different than anyone else was doing. And that's why I think at that time when this came out, and even now, no other artist could have been able to touch this. And it's just, it, it was different. There were no heavy ink lines or, you know, insane amounts of, you know, cross-hatching and, you know, all of that stuff. He was able to give us uh, Norman Rockwell in comic book form, and it worked. And that's why. It... I, and I think it actually, when you mentioned that, I think that that sort of ties back into the kind of story that that was being told. It's being told, as it's been pointed out earlier, that it's this is a really a morality tale, and it's it's, it's about a set of values that goes back traditionally within the American culture, and and nothing really represents more of, of Americana in times past than that whole Norman Rockwell look. So, 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 so in order to you know kind of appropriate that style, you know, particularly in in referencing. Um, you know, it, 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 referencing the older characters like Superman, but also giving you their perspective on the uh, newer characters like Magog and Von Bosch or whatever they are, how ridiculous these characters actually look if you're coming at it from that kind of worldview and you can actually literally see it where if somebody else with a more stylized since we're drawing it with a more pen and ink style, we're drawing it. They could actually make these costumes look kind of cool. You might look at some of these guys and say, "Oh yeah, this black guy looks kind of cool." So I, I think that's a I think that's an interesting point. Yeah, and, you, know, you know, it's interesting. Like Go I was just really quick to say, if a guy like Jim Lee had, which I love Jim Lee, but if if he would have done this book, I just wouldn't have taken it serious as serious as I took it. What I, what I think is interesting when you mentioned. Uh, when you mentioned the, the deliberate attempt to do uh, the, the design of these characters um, and make them exaggerated and make them uh, a parody of the image comics characters, I think, uh, and I think, you know, even uh, Mark Wade uh, will cop to uh, one of the kind of sort of failings was that in the end, uh, I thought Magog looked awesome. You know, I thought that was a great looking character and it was certainly of its time, but it just even kind of went to show that Alex Ross uh, was able to make that, figure out a way to make that work and, and take those things that were uh, prevalent in, in comics that they looked bad and actually kind of pull it together and make it work the same way he could take elements from a variety of different, like, you know, we, we look at this Superman and, and, Certainly, there's George Reeves in there, but there's also a little bit of the Superman of Earth Two, with the uh, the graying temples, um, and the Fleischer Superman. I mean, he really, like you know, when we were mentioning it being kind of iconic, pulls pieces and and makes them work. And I think he actually did that with some of the the freaky character designs. Uh, I think the one that that Brian Azzarello, uh, that that's based on him. I think that character looks fantastic. Uh, so I think it's just kind of interesting that, that he still, even when he was trying to parody something bad, he wound up making some things that looked pretty good. Uh, so we've been slathering tons of love on Alex Ross because the artwork is pretty, but the words in this book are amazing, too. Like, uh, her lips brush his with the sound of marble scraping steel. It is a kiss completely devoid of passion. 
is a final farewell. There are so many moments that the artwork is great, but on top of this great artwork, you have some of the best comic book writing of all time. So it is probably one of the, the most perfect comics. Uh, does anybody else think that any, any other writer could have tackled this? Like uh, at the time, uh, Kurt Busiek, because he was the one that did Marvels. Uh, Mike, what's your team? Well, I mean, in terms of the, the use of language, definitely. Um, I think that even though Mark Wade is very, very good at it, uh, there are actually a lot of writers who are, are far better. Um, Alan Moore, actually, you can find a treatment online of a story that some people uh, have accused this of ripping off called, uh, I think, Twilight of the Superheroes, where he was going to write a big epic um, DC Comics, con- and it was going to be set in the future in a confrontation between Superman and Captain Marvel and Superman and or Wonder Woman. The House Woman. of Thunder and the, the House ho- of Steel. House of Steel and House of Thunder and... Uh, and a lot of the, the characters, it, it featured John Constantine. It was actually going to kind of tie in with that. So it's a great treatment. You can find it out there online if you poke around a little bit. Um, so he, I, th- I think he could have, have, have done that. Um, and certainly, you know, by this time, Neil Gaiman, who, you know, I think there are a few that, that can write words in a comic as good as, as Neil Gaiman can, as much as I may dislike some of his work. That's not That's not something that I would ever accuse him of. But I don't know that anybody else has Mark Wade's, you know, I'm going to invent a word here, silver aginess as well. Um, mm-hmm. Kurt Busick has that but doesn't quite have the command of the words, and I don't think he, you know, Marvel's was very, very good, but I don't think that it it has the scope that this has either. I mean, Wade can certainly write big, and I don't know that anybody else can write beautifully, can write big, and write... I guess deep because you know you can feel the history here that you don't necessarily get out of Alan Moore's work. You know, th- this this reads like someone who has read a million comic books and is still a really great writer. Yeah, Mark Wade, I was, I was thinking that that when we got around to talking about him, the one thing that you can say that he brought um, to the table was a deep reverence and knowledge not only of the, the the sort of munchkin aspects of the superhero DC universe, but a respect for them as characters. And and I don't know how I I, I, I have to think that, and without actually knowing that a lot of what was conveyed by Alex Ross in terms of his designs was things that Wade and Ross agreed on or came to terms with or came in were or in of, of a like mind about in terms of what they were doing when they were talking about what the story was going to be. You know, they said, okay, we need a bunch of characters and we need them to look like this. Um, we need characters to reference this and we re- need to reference that. And I'm pretty sure that as the writer, um, Mark Wade was the one who was saying, yeah, you know, we should probably have somebody in here who's um, a kid of, 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 of Oliver Queen and 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 Dinah Drake Lance, or we should have somebody who's um, Nightwing's kid should be with Starfire as opposed to with um, Flamebird or something like that. And and, and so and and yeah, I, we can talk for hours and hours and hours about um, Alex Ross's contribution, but as as Mike pointed out, Alex Ross on his own 
that does not create anything near as as is it near as, as epic in terms of the 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 breadth of encompassing the entire um, DC universe and and as 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 um, they did in uh, Kingdom Come. Plus, I'm pretty sure that that Wade was the one who came up with the idea of the Planet Krypton restaurants, and I want my Planet Krypton franchise now. Where we don't, how come we don't have those? <laughs> Uh, Karen, we would be as, recording this right. We would be recording this there right now. Uh, Karen, as somebody who had never read this before, what do you think about the writing? Uh, <laughs> it's fine. I didn't really stop and think about it, so I guess that's a win. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that that actually is a win when you don't when when you aren't taken out of the story by the writing or the artwork which, uh, you know, you, you were taken out of the story by the, the lettering. But when you aren't taken out of the story by something in the, the art or the, the, the writing, it's obviously really good art and writing. Uh, Anthony, anything from you? Uh, as far as the writing, uh, I just like how it was definitely easy accessible. I mean, the fact that every, the, whole, the whole concept and the story was tight and the fact that Clark goes into hiding, the first time we see him is up in uh, the Fortress of Solitude, although we think he's back on the, uh, the Kansas farm. And the reason why he has that Kansas farm is the fact that Lois died in a giant uh, atomic bomb, and that's kind of like where he wants to be and where he goes and how he, he, he keeps himself, he keeps uh, peace of mind. It, it was a Joker, like, gas bomb, but yeah, she did die. Um, Dave. Play with the gas bomb. Yeah, yeah the Joker killed everyone yeah. at the Daily Planet. He killed everybody yeah. at the Daily Planet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm really getting this story confused. <laughs> but Mr. Gill, as a writer, somewhat, <laughs> well, how do you think of the writing? <laughs> that was very sweet. Yeah. I think the writing was, was spectacular. And I've always enjoyed Mark Wade, even when he was writing books that I, you know, like when he created Impulse or when he was writing The Flash, and those were books that I never wanted to pick up, and I picked them up, and they were they were good. You know, he's, he's really never... Never disappointed me, but I think that, and it goes back to this silver aginess, I think that the two of them were such enormous fans of these comics uh, that he was the perfect writer for this piece because he, he did have just as large an understanding or even, you know, more understanding than Alex Ross uh, on this character's history that, uh, you know, if he got to be more poetic than he often is in this book. I think he was that inspired by the concept that his writing... Uh, you know, transform to a more, I don't want to say flowery, because that sounds demeaning, but um, it's just its just definitely prettier prose than you're used to reading from Mark Wade. He always tells a good story. He always hits the right points in, in uh, sequential storytelling, and he always has good, clever dialogue and small moments and big moments. But this was definitely, I think, you know, his finest work. So other writers could have written this book, but it, it wouldn't have those those perfect moments. Well, you know, just, just, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that to speak to 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 how effective Mark Wade is, nobody else has. They've been, you know, they've been trying for thirty, fifty years to figure out what the hell to do with the original Captain Marvel, and nobody has come up with anything that anywhere comes close to the role that the character played in Kingdom Come. 
Ain't nobody is any, you know, just think about it. Think about that one panel, you know, where Captain Marvel is standing there over Superman and you're like, holy crap, Captain Marvel is awesome. And I'm going to crap my pants because something horrible is going to happen. It's very kind of a Marvel Man moment. And even though Marvel Man came before it, nobody had actually thought to take Captain Marvel and do a Marvel Man with him. I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, after this comic book, that's when I became a huge Captain Marvel fan. I thought it was awesome. I was waiting for a comic book to come out. The fact that he used the lightning bolt itself to bring Superman to his knees was freaking epic. So I was a little. See, I hated that. Me. Why was that? Because <laughs> Superman should have had the powers of a Marvel. Right, after because that 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 was one of the things where I'm like. Mark Wade doesn't really understand how magic works, does he? Because uh, how how does he get away from the lightning bolt? The lightning bolt is drawn to him, not to the spot he's standing on. Well, actually, in the old in the old Captain Marvel continuity, that lightning bolt could be diverted by any number of methods. Savannah used to do it all the time. That was one of the. But ways. does but did it cause just lightning bolt damage, or does it transfer powers? See, and and it, it played fast and loose depending on who was who was actually doing the writing of the story, because most of the time, because actually um, there were actual times when um, any of the marvels could be transformed by a sufficiently large bolt of just electricity. It didn't have to be the magic lightning. Uh, Karen, you were going to say something. Oh, well, first. Um... You know, talking about lightning damage just makes me think, yeah, he had like a D12 lightning bolt plus six. You know, it bypassed Rand's defenses because I'm an RPG nerd. But um, now that you guys have actually said what you think about writing, I realized that when you said writing, you meant plot. And I hated the very end where Wonder Woman was like, I'm pregnant. I hated that. Well, let's see. That's funny no. because that is a capper. That wasn't actually in the original story as well as uh, going to... Um, Apocalypse. Apocalypse. That was something added for the uh, trade paperback. So those weren't there. Those last few pages aren't there in the original format. You were going to say something? Else? I was fine with the cafe and the sort of surrealness that the superheroes experience going in there. And I sort of get the, ha ha, they just got done killing all the superheroes' children, and then we made this big, you know, pact with humanity, and we're going to be humans now. <laughs> She's pregnant. Yeah. Well, I think the point that goes back to the, you know, not being above humanity, but being part of humanity is just another example. Here they are, they're having dinner at a restaurant. Weirded out though they may be, they're they're doing normal things. He's moving on with his life after being, you know, miserably secluded after Lois died. He's moving on to another, you know, amazing woman, and they're having a kid. And I think that's sort of what they were going for. Not necessary to make the story, uh, you know, good because it could have just ended when it ended. But I think that's what they were trying to go for with that. Is like, no, see, look, here they are. They are being people now. They are not lording themselves over people, but they are among us. To give, yeah, give the story closure. And also what I think about um, Mark Wade's writing is his character development is awesome. Uh, someone had just brought up uh, Shazam, Captain Marvel, and he, what a psychotic character he was able to create from 
someone who, I mean, personally, I don't, before this, I didn't, didn't really know anything about Captain Marvel. And um, going back and reading some of his old stuff, just with what he did with them, it was just like, wow. Like, he really, he pulled something out, not out of his ass, but like he just pulled something out of nowhere and just made that character uh, be able to go one-on-one against Superman to be his equal, almost. Or maybe even stronger with the whole lightning bolt thing, which didn't bother me, because, again, I didn't really know the character that much. And also because... I knew that magic could hurt Superman, and yes, the lightning bolt was magical, so it didn't bug me. And with the ending, I I really enjoyed them sitting down, talking, and, you know, yeah, she's pregnant. That was cool. I just think it gave it all a sense of, we don't have to come back and touch this. And I, and I think that they did come up with a sequel, right? The Kingdom? Yeah, right? that, was, that, uh, that was you know, just Mark Wade, though. Oh Alex yeah, Ross. and the, yeah, because I know Alex Ross he pulled out of it because I guess he wasn't happy with it, which you know happens. It's happening right now with Before Watchmen, and I think as long as we keep this story as just uh, an actual beginning and an end, because it is, it's it's a complete story that that's it leaves no open ends. I have no after I read it, I didn't I didn't need to know what was the fate of everyone because it ended in such a way where I was like I was happy with everything. You know, the superheroes have become one with the humans. And, you know, humanity hurt the superheroes in a way that superheroes had already hurt them before. And it's just everything went full circle and everything was A-OK in the end. And that's really what you don't get with a lot of other of these epic stories like Watchmen or, or Dark Knight, you know, Returns. You know, those two books, they, they end open-ended. And this one did not. And you were completely happy with the ending. Well, I think that was part of what the end, uh, the addition uh, on the end too, was not not necessarily to present a uh, an, an opportunity for a sequel, even though they they were working on one. And actually, if you if you hunt down, uh, Alex Ross has talked about when he was working on it, what the basic premise of uh, of his take on the kingdom was going to be, and then they went in another direction. Um, it actually is is pretty interesting, but I don't think that was the intention so much as a uh, life goes on. I mean, it, it's and that that's why it wasn't in the original pieces. It really the story that was there was told, um, but this is just a you know it's it's you know how much a year later or whatever um, a little just sort of look at how how things have all kind of worked out and gotten back to normal and like Dave said. Uh, they're they're regular people now, um, and also it was something that they could put into uh, sell a trade paperback to people who had already bought the four issues. You know, and and, 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 what, and you know that's interesting is that, that um, in terms of things that Wade in his writing, I had forgotten about the aspect of Superman turning his back on humanity after humanity turned their back on Superman, or at least that's how he felt. And that, and that is sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's the important thing I think to remember about this story isn't that it was, it was all the superheroes put themselves above um, humanity. It was sort of like superheroes and humanity sort of, sort of came, sort of split up. It was, it was, 
you know, superheroes, you know, the turning point, at least in terms for Superman, was when people wanted him to kill the Joker. And, you know, and, and, and everybody's like, kill the Joker, kill the Joker, kill the Joker. And he's like, no, I'm not going to kill the Joker. I'm going to take him to jail like I do because that's what I believe in. And then Magog comes in and kills the Joker, and everybody's like, hey, Magog, you're awesome. You're better than Superman because you killed the Joker. And and so at that point, it's sort of like, you know, it's like humanity gives in to its fears, and Superman throws up his hands, his hands, and they go their separate, separate way. And by the end of the story, it's not just the superheroes who realize that they need to be part of humanity. It's humanity reali- kind of realizes that they need to embrace heroes as opposed to people with powers. Because, they, you know, as soon as people who were heroes with superpowers back stepped away from society, they got a bunch of assholes who had superpowers, and then they had to deal with them. And so I think everybody comes learns something as a, throughout the course of the story. And that's, you know, that to me is a more satisfying read than just, you know, you're wrong, but you learned something, and we've always been right, and we're just going to look at you and say, silly Negro, now you know. And, you know, so so I think, so I think that that aspect of the story, you know, the, the underlying whatever the conflict between humanity and heroes and how it was worked out and how it was resolved. I think that's essentially that's what, what keeps the story from becoming another um, dark fantasy about power corrupting superheroes and superheroes. You know, you know they get their powers, but they go out of control. You got to take them in check. You know, and now that's that's Civil War bullshit, and that's part of why I didn't like Civil War, and that's part of why I do like King of you know, it's interesting that you you uh, you mentioned that, and this is actually something that Dame and I had talked about uh, earlier um, before the show. Was uh, that that was one of the things that that for me, looking at it now, years later, um, I, I do see, and maybe it's because I I both see the critique of the superheroes of the time differently now than I did when, when I read this and just some of the, uh, the ideology behind some of this. Um, and, and that goes back to, you know, when we were talking about with, with, uh, Damon and the idea that the, the villains now, you know, I know Brian, you're defining the other, the other superpowered characters in here as villains, but certainly they, they do not define themselves as villains and the people don't necessarily define them as, as villains that they have kind of, uh, driven away the the classic bad guy element, um, and uh, and and just going you know, with the the idea with the Joker is everybody saying you know basically Lois dies because no one ever actually killed the Joker. If someone had, all the people that that the Joker killed would have lived, and that is ultimately what the public is embracing. And certainly at this time, when this book came out, um. That was a perspective uh, that I think you 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 certainly saw a, a lot more than than you do now. You know now do you know now we have you know shows like Twenty Four where where the hero is is torturing villains for for the greater good. Um, and how does this story play now? And I think Damon, when you called, how does this story play out in a post nine eleven world? 
uh, where where the the boundary between light and dark uh, maybe has changed a little bit more. Well, it's interesting you say it like that because there's a in the scene I just put them through when he confronts Magog in Kansas and he, uh, you know, and he's trying to rebuild whatever he's trying to do and they get in this little tussle and he's mad. He's like, it's just your fault because you left. It's like my fault. And he says, uh, the world changed, but you wouldn't. So they chose me. They chose the man who would kill over the man who wouldn't. And now they're dead. So it's, it's, uh, the heroes at the time, like in the 90s, they were, you know, it used to be like there was Wolverine and Punisher that would kill the Marvel Universe, and there was, you know, I don't even know who in the DC Universe, but then, like, everybody was like, had killed somebody or was willing to do it or whatever, and, uh, and they just, you know, it is, I mean, that's a really good point. Today's audience versus the audience in the mid-90s, like, what, what is the right thing to do? Even when they were trying to, uh, take down all these random, crazy 90s heroes that they created. Superman at one point says, you know, it shouldn't be this hard to get them to stop fighting and join us. Because, you know, he remembers when he wanted to be a hero, when he wanted to do things right, he wanted to live by a certain standard. And, you know, you're a hero for heroic sake, not, you know, call yourself a hero because you got powers or tech or whatever. And, you know, but yeah, all the bad guys were hiding away you know, not in costume anymore because all the heroes were killing them. Like, they were just killing them off. I mean, there's hardly any any traditional villains in this book because most of them probably are dead or retired or in jail or... And, uh, and it, 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 again, I mean, the, the whole thing is a story about morals and ethics. So it's just another deeper aspect to, you know, what is right or should you have done. Because, yeah, you should have killed the Joker. That's how I feel. But... Uh, but at the same time, I'm not a big fan of the death penalty, you know. So this is this is what makes the book so good is it gets you thinking about all these different, you know, moral conundrums that we're faced with. But on uh, you know uh, on a canvas that's you know uh, fantastic and extreme. So well, you know, uh, it, it, a lot a lot of decisions that are made in the story are, are decisions that are made um, to serve the plot. And to, serve, and to serve the ideas that they want to discuss, you know, a lot of these moral conundrums, um, because everybody, you know, you can you can you can you can make the Joker not a threat without have, having to kill the Joker, um, but then you don't. If you do that, then you don't have the story. So, you know, so you, taking all the you have to take that kind of of, of practicality. You know, don't you know? That's part of the willing suspension of disbelief when you come to stories like this. Is that nobody actually thought of the half dozen other ways that you can think of to have resolved that issue without things leading to the way that they're lead, you know, taking place in the story. Well, with the exception of putting the Joker into the Phantom Zone, and even then, the Joker, because of the history of comic books. It's the fault of continuity that the Joker is as evil as he is, and he always gets out of jail. That's one of those things. He always escapes. So how do you stop a guy that will always get out of jail and will always kill more people? That's the, that, that's the actual question here. You know the Joker will kill again if he gets out, and if he get, and it's an inevitability that he will get out. So what is the resu- how do you resolve that problem? 
because Joker, time and time again, over the last 70 years of his of his existence, every time, every well, time that, they lock him up, he gets out. And then when because, he gets out, he kills a couple people. Yeah, but that's because, you know, some omnipotent writer somewhere decides that the Joker needs to get out. Well, I understand that. But but because we have this from the Joker, this is this is something you, you know about the Joker. It, it, the Joker is crazy. The Joker kills people. The Joker goes to jail. The Joker gets back out. These are things that are comic book laws. The Joker will never sit in prison forever because somebody will come along and write him back out. And, and I understand it's a, a, a writer trick, but because it is a writer trick, it's a part of his history, of his makeup. It's part of what is the Joker. So the question now is, this is a part of the character. If you lock him up, he will get out. How do you deal with that? And when he gets out, he kills people. What is the answer? Do you freeze him in carbonite? Do you throw him in the phantom zone? Even then, because the Joker always gets out, this is something, Batman always wins, Joker always gets out. How do you deal with it other than ending the Joker? Well, see, that's just it. By that logic, you can't end the Joker because even death, he'll come up with some way to argue his way out of hell. Well, that, that might be possible. But you understand what I'm saying. Well, I, I, I with, with, with the character of the Joker, other mm-hmm. char- like you couldn't have thrown any other bad guy into that point there. Because Two-Face, I don't see Two-Face getting out all the time. Uh, Mr. Mm-hmm. Freeze, any of the other plethora of DC villains that kill people, you put them in there and Magog kills them, it's like, whoa, that's, that's crossing the line. But when you have the Joker there, you blur it enough that maybe Magog is right. Because Joker is the guy that there's no real answer to. The answer is, I don't know, hopefully we can keep him locked up this time. Well, the answer mostly has been not to address it. Right. Um, and and every time they do, the, you, you get this kind of, of problem. Um, and... Uh, and you know the the it, it's one of those things that happens in comics also where with where there's the the conflict between the real world answer and the the answer within the story. The reason that the Joker keeps getting out is because when he gets out, DC Comics makes a lot of money. You know they cannot kill these characters. Batman doesn't kill the Joker realistically, not because of some grand moral code. He doesn't kill the Joker because the Joker is a viable uh, you know trademark character that is is a property of, of a company. So then they have to try to find these ways in the context of the story to explain, uh, these things. And and the moral code is actually a very kind of important part of that. Um, but I, yeah, I think more often than not, they just choose not to address that. Or, uh, like as, as, as Brian mentioned, sometimes they just don't write the Joker as that kind of a threat. If he's a wacky zany Joker that, he gets out, and maybe every once in a while somebody dies, but for the most part, he just causes some trouble and property damage, and people get hurt. Um, but then, when some people write him as the, you know, leaving a, a, a trail of bodies uh, in a shared continuity, do the, you know how do you address that? When then next time, you know, they're saying, "Hey, we we should kill him," and the, they do the uh, an insanity defense. And I think that's what this this story does. It just says eventually, then somebody ste- somebody else steps up and says, "Okay, if Batman's not going to do it, I will." And and how does that affect the world? And I, uh, that, that that's kind of and to me, you know, when, when I first read this, I was definitely a lot more on Superman's side. Uh, today, uh, 
a lot more of me leans towards, you know, Magog's side. So I think it's kind of interesting. And I certainly, from the story, can tell where, uh, you know, Alex Ross and and Mark Wade uh, weigh in on this. But, you know, again, they are very classic, um, you know, Silver Age, old school um, type creators. And, and certainly the heroes that they put in this book uh, are cut from that cloth. You were going to say something, Leo? Yeah, and I was going to say that's what... Um... And that's why Mark Wade did so well with that story is because we're arguing, not arguing, but, you know, we're talking about this. And I think in the story itself, it really doesn't tell you whether Magog was uh, wrong or right, or if Superman was, you know, right to leave because justice failed him. Um, we're talking about it because it's, it's, it's a dilemma that we don't know the answer to. We can't say, well, yeah, you know, kill him. Because then, you know, it, it brings up that moral problem. But then we can't say, well, the courts are going to hold him because he always escapes. So what I really like Mark Lloyd did is that he was able to defeat especially the big three. But everyone else in this book, in the beginning of it, I mean, look at Superman leaves because truth and justice failed him. Um, Wonder Woman has shunned from the uh, Amazons because um, she failed in bringing peace to the world. Batman failed, and in his failure, he's made Gotham a totalitarian state where he basically polices everyone. And I think that's his failure because I don't think he ever wanted to get to that point. But he feels if everyone, if everywhere else is screwed up, he might as well try to keep Gotham in check and he's become just some fucking creep in a room with <laughs> with television sets and cameras everywhere and robots running the streets you know and Mark Wade was able to do all this and not let you know who was right and who was wrong you know, I think it, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that. I just happened to be flipping through. And uh, and right at the end of book one, I mean, certainly the, I think the the question has been, been posed of this too is, you know, basically uh, if Superman had not left, if he had not made that choice of, hey, these people are turning their back on me, I'll turn my back on them. If he had still just said, I don't care if they're turning their back on me, I'm still going to be this this light, could the the heroes have not turned out the way they did? And I think that's one of the things they I think they address it here when they talk about Superman never really understanding that he was the inspiration, that the, the their generation took their guidance from him. And without him, there was no one to really guide. When he turns his back, Wonder Woman leaves, uh, the other characters all just kind of uh, stop being, I mean, the Justice League basically ends and uh, and the the heroes all kind of go into strange semi-retirements or, you know, Flash and, and Batman just sort of isolate their own cities from everybody else. Green Lantern's out in space. Hawkman's just basically, you know, taking care of the, uh, uh, of nature and things like that. That when Superman leaves, uh, it all falls apart. And when he comes to understand that, uh, is his response here then kind of excessive to sort of compensate for that? And, and the idea that, you know, at, at the end when Superman shows up 
and uh, you know Norman's going, oh, we need a some, we need a miracle, we need we need hope. His exact words: Superman shows up, beats all of the be- all of the heroes, bad guys, or whatever. Um, he stands in the sky is rewarded. He's returned, and and then Norman gets the vision of Superman uh, bathed in red, you know, screaming, and he goes, "Dear God, Armageddon hasn't ended. It's just begun." And he realizes that it's Superman returning after this time that really lights this fuse. Um, it's kind of just piggybacking on your, your comment. It's kind of funny how you bring up the uh, the, the storyline of Superman leaving because it is this new breed of uh, of uh, superheroes, and it kind of reminds me of the story that they did with uh, with the elite. And it's kind of like they touched upon it in the sense that here's these these uh, these new superheroes that that will go through all extreme measures, but Superman this time instead of uh, caving into the the pressure of what the public wanted, he still fought the good fight and fought the way he did. And it, it, it's kind of funny how that story kind of piggybacked on what on the uh, elements that was established here. And, you know, ultimately Superman doesn't just turn his back because uh, of, of the thing with Magog, but I think he turns his back because he lost Lois. And, yeah, you know, a very human reaction. Around. What was that? I'm sorry. I said, yeah, he's mourning. That's why he left. It, it wasn't his, his distrust of the new breed of heroes entirely. It was like he lost the woman that he loved for all these years, you know? He's like, yeah, what fuck it? I'm done. It, all it, I did. It was a pride thing. Oh, go ahead, Dan. Sorry. It, it was more than just losing Lois because it, it wasn't just losing Lois. He, he could go on after losing Lois, but it was also losing the trust of the people he was trying to protect on top of losing Lois that made him go, okay, I'm done. He, his, his one connection to humanity, which is Lois Lane. Well, not just Lois. It was all the Daily Planet, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's yeah, everybody. Everybody. It's all his friends. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, that, and, it, and that brings in an interesting point about the side characters or the additional characters or the, the cast of, of any you know, good superhero comic is the role that they play in making the hero the hero in terms of like the daily planet staff is sort of Superman's touchstone with the reality. And once they're gone, he stops being um, Superman for a while. And, and, and uh, Batman, his eventual loss um, of his connection to his, his sidekicks has always been, Consider, at least by me, considered and many others to be considered one of the things that um, makes Batman more reasonable and and helps you know keep him and on the path of being a hero as opposed to just being a highly effective asshole. And Wonder Woman loses her connection with you know the Amazons. All of these characters in this story, are, you know, all the major characters lose their connection with something. Um, and and in the loss of that and in the loss of that, they they lose, you know, their 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 way as heroes. You know, you know, it's it's and and then the way that that they lose their way as heroes for many of them is the fact that they lose their contact with the people. Their moral most, compass. Yeah, their moral compass. The people who are who are most important to them. It's not it's not that just that they lose their moral compass is that their moral compass in terms of you know the role that they that they fulfill for humanity which I think 
comes down to, you know, being that hope and being that guide and, and, and showing people the right way is that they have these connections to other people. And as soon as these characters start losing their connections to quote unquote normal human beings, they also start becoming a problem, let alone, you know, not just the, the heroes who have, you know, moral issues. You know, I think it, it's I, interesting. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, see, I, I was thinking when I now talking about it, I, I feel that maybe Superman leaving had more to do than, than uh, what had happened. Maybe it was a pride thing. You know, um, when um, they got killed, the Joker, he wanted everybody else to fall in line and have this man be arrested. I mean, when the Joker did what he did, he wanted, you know, Joker to be arrested and, you know, go to jail and fall in line to that. And then when he returns, what does he do to the superheroes? He wants them to fall in line. And then I think at the end, that's when he realizes, no, I can't make everyone fall in line. You know, I have to help with coming up with an actual system. You know, there has to be a system that just can't be what I want everyone to do. And I felt that we kind of captured that a bit with him. One of the things I think is interesting about uh, about Superman in this book, um, you know, when you see him for the first time, and this is kind of omitting the the epilogue, when you see him for the first time, he's on the fake farm um, in in the Fortress of Solitude. Uh, when you see him for the last time, he's he's you know doing the real farm uh, in Kansas. He's 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 kind of pulling that thing behind him, and. Uh, what low or what uh, Diana gives him at the end is his glasses, um, which he hadn't worn the entire book. When you first see him, uh, he even she calls, she says hello, Clark. He just glares at her and she calls him Cal. Uh, he has not been Clark for this entire book. Um, it isn't until the end when he puts the glasses on that he becomes Clark Kent again, which is the human. Um, when he lost Lois and lost the planet and lost the people he lost humanity and and you know where does he go he goes off into a fortress of solitude an illusion created by kryptonian technology surrounded by by artifacts of krypton a planet that he he never even was on you know i mean this is all just sort of like the relics of a dead world you know he's turned it back on one world and, and hidden away in a dead world uh, but the whole time he's lost Clark until the end when he gets his glasses. And then in that whole epilogue, he's wearing his glasses because he's Clark Kent again. Yeah. Anything now, else, majority? Uh, one other thing, and this is, this, uh, this is something that is, is pretty big, is also the first time you see him. Uh, it's an homage to the cover of Superman number one, but it, it's also a very Christ-like image. You know, he's almost crucified. Uh, he's got a beard. He's got long hair. Uh, the title, Kingdom Come, uh, is from the Lord's Prayer. The book opens with uh, passages from Revelation. Uh, Norman is a preacher. The specter is the wrath of God. I mean, this thing has got uh, Christian symbolism, you know, running through it. Um, and uh, what does everybody think of that? I try not to. I love it. Um, being an American, 
I'm not actually Christian, but uh, I do know lots of Christ- about Christianity. I, you know, I was kind of raised Christian, kind of. Uh, I, I think it's totally uh, appropriate because the main character, which was Norman, is a preacher, and it brings a little bit of God into the DC universe. And it's only a little bit because everybody else is gods. Batman is a god. Superman is God. Wonder Woman is God. They're all gods in there, and it brings a, a higher power into the whole entire mix, and I kind of like that. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, Superman was raised on a farm in Kansas. Chances are pretty darn good that he went to church every Sunday with Mom and Pa Kent. You know? So he was raised with these Christian principles, which goes back to the tenet of thou shalt not kill, which is why he... You know, can't even accept it when you kill the ultimate villain. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, the parables they make between between the preacher and Superman as a Christ figure, which obviously they they did in, in the real DC universe too, with killing him and bringing him back from the dead. Uh, on top of the fact that they, as the heroes, are essentially a pantheon of gods. I mean, there's a lot of. I mean, this is why we like our modern myths. I mean, these. You know, they're, they're intrinsic in our subconscious that we enjoy stories about these characters that have these these trials and interactions that are so far beyond our understanding, and yet you can make sense of them. It's just, you know, I like to think what you know, the Bible and, and other holy books are trying to teach you, uh, <laughs> that, that, you know, these fantastic stories also should, should uh, you know, echo within yourself. And I think they did, again, a really good job. I think that Alex Ross, I mean, obviously he is the son of a preacher, am I right? I think his father yeah. actually was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, so his influences are, are pretty obvious. I, mean, I don't know. Mark Wade seems like a pretty normal guy, so I would say that his are also, and I think that's one way that they really agree. Because one of the things I read, Mark Wade, you know, they started reading the book of Revelations, and all of a sudden, all, you know, the, 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 the seven thunders and all that stuff, and they're like, oh my gosh, this is perfect use for these characters as harbingers of the apocalypse or as angels from on high or as any uh, uh, several other things that they could take from from the Bible and, and utilize on the comic book page. So yeah, I think the religious I think it was, I think it worked. I don't think it was offensive in any way. Because, you know, again you're dealing with individual characters and you know, Superman wasn't raised Buddhist. Um, you know, or, or he's not Hindu or, or anything, you know, or Muslim or what have you. So it's going to be a Christian book if it's about Superman to to a degree. But I never found it in any way offensive or, or, or pushy because, they, you know, they definitely got into, the, the, again, the moral and ethical conflict of, of you know, how do you, how do you live in the world around you when all you see is, you know, whatever sin and decay how do you sustain your own moral code, your own trusted virtue? I bet they did a good job. I, I kind of see it almost like I can relate it to um, Superman being absent from the world. It can almost be related to um, how some people feel that God is absent to the world. And all the bad things that are happening are happening because God and Superman aren't there. And things will be so much better when Superman shows up. Just you know, just like oh, things will be much better if God were just like no, don't let that flood happen. Here you go, and and that's how I almost relate that whole thing to where yes, Superman is Christ-like, God-like in this book. And I mean, isn't isn't this story essentially then the uh, the the second coming of Superman? 
You know, Wait, Superman well, has left yeah. us and well, maybe it, like, he returns. Uh, and of course, mm-hmm. you know, in, in Christian mythology, Christ's return is synonymous with the apocalypse, which, you know, this uh, the, right mm-hmm. bef- right at the very end of book three. And, you know, you know, it's funny, certainly, you know, Christian mythology, but also and I, I use mythology. I'm not intending to offend anybody. Um, but, uh, you know, throughout mythology, there are Ragnarok stories. Um, there are end of the world myths. And and this is essentially kind of just, you know, crisis was uh, very much a, a, a Ragnarok uh, apocalypse, end of the world story. Uh, this one, it's kind of a narrowly averted uh, end of the world crisis sort of thing. And, and it's really interesting. And I, I never really kind of made this connection until until right now. You know, all throughout this book, the the basic idea is, you know, Superman is the, the Christ figure. Uh, is the Messiah, uh, and yet one of the things about uh, about Jesus was this idea that he was a mix of humanity and divinity. Um, he was not just a divine being; he was he was a human being, and he was also divine. And in the end, that winds up being Captain Marvel. I mean, that's the choice that the Superman says. He's like, I can't make that choice. You know, you decide because you've lived in both worlds, and he. Uh, he chooses to sacrifice himself. So in the end, Captain Marvel basically takes over the uh, the Christ. And, and actually, if you look at the nuclear explosion, once again, it's a big crucifix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got a lot of empty space here. Yeah, once again, the whole Jesusifying of of my secularist humanist comic book heroes actually kind of craps on the story for me. So you heathen. Yeah. I'm proud of it. It doesn't add or detract anything. As a matter of fact, uh, what Leo was talking about, Oh, Leo's got to go. He's got an early day tomorrow. But, uh, what Leo was talking about, the, the absence of these things should be what, what this story says is, not you know an absence of God or what we believe is an absence of God or an absence of Superman. Uh, we don't have to be assholes because that person is gone. And, and when you are assholes because that thing or person is gone, things can get much 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 worse. Uh, just be good to each other in the in interim, and things could be fine. Uh, people were not good to each other when Superman left. They, it, things got worse because people let them get worse. They they didn't try. They lost hope. They lost faith. It's weird. Jesus. And when he came back, they almost faced his wrath. Well, uh, when uh, when they came, when he came back, he came back, and he wasn't any different. He was the Superman that left ten years ago. Even though you know it, 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 he was, he seems different. He's the guy that decided to turn his back. It's him taking his, going. Okay, I'm coming back. And that ten years is nothing to him. It, it's meaningless. He worked on a farm and he did stuff. It, it, it was inconsequential to him, but the world changed immensely. And he didn't change it at all, which made him, well, do what he did and fucking grind the world into a pulp. I do believe if he didn't come back, this wouldn't have escalated to this point. I think Captain Marvel would have ruled the world, but yeah. That's well, and then I think uh, Luther would have actually wound up succeeding and taking over the world. Yeah, that probably. And like also to make another um, 
like to relate another Bible thing is um, Superman before everything happened reminded me somewhat of like there's a quote in the Bible that when Jesus comes back he'll be not a lamb but a lion and I almost felt that before Superman had left he was much more timid to say but when he comes back he's much more uh, raw he's more angry he wants to do things his way and I thought that was really um, interesting just comparison there Thank you very much, Mr. Perez. Are you going now? Yeah, I'm bouncing like in two minutes. All right. I love you guys. Are we bouncing now, Mike? Is it? Is there anything else you wanted to say? Oh, I mean, there's there's always more to say. I know there's always more to say, <laughs> but we've been talking for almost two hours now. <laughs> uh, well, one just just as kind of a, a for me just to wrap up, um, just uh, throwing out. Just some moments that you thought were great moments that, that have always stood with you, have always stuck with me. For me, uh, one of one of my favorites, it just, just I know it's just kind of a little moment, is Superman walks into his holographic, his big giant TV room. And, you know, he walks in, but he's just floating. Uh, and then he just says, on, and you cut to that just, you know, multiple walls of TV screens. It makes me go, you know, that's pretty awesome that in the Fortress of Solitude, Superman basically has a TV for every single channel. <laughs> uh, Leo? Um, of course, my favorite part is going to be Superman kneeling and uh, Captain Marvel just over him saying Shazam. Uh, Anthony? <clears throat> Mine is uh, in the Batcave right prior to uh, all hell breaking loose. And uh, Bruce is telling uh, Superman that Captain Marvel, that was Luther's master plan. And at that moment, Bruce turns away and Superman flies away. Bruce turns back and he says, oh, that's what that feels like. That was awesome. <laughs> and then they ripped that off and in the Batman movie. You put that in so yeah. many other Batman mediums. Uh, Mr. Townsend. Uh, well, other than things that have been mentioned that were kind of cool, um, I suppose the thing that, that, that I really got the biggest sort of nerdgasm over at the time when I was reading the book was when you find out that, uh, Lex Luthor has been controlling Captain Marvel because he's stuck little genetically modified Mr. Minds <laughs> in his ear. And and everybody has mocked the uh, mind controlling worm from Venus. But, you know, it was a good it was a good homage to all the history of a guy who is no longer with us. Uh, uh, Mr. Gill? Actually, oh, similar. Okay, I did really enjoy that too because like, you knew if, if you know the comics, and you know, so Karen maybe not because you never read them. Like you knew it was Shazam the whole time, so you're like, oh shit, oh shit, what are they going to do with him? He's under Luther's control. And uh, and then when Batman finally turns on the the, the villainous Cabal and he punches him in the face and he puts his foot on his neck so he can't speak, so he can't say Shazam, and they're all like, oh man, I thought he was Shazam this whole time, but he was just a human because he just grown up into a grown man, so now he looked like Shazam looked when they fought with him when they were younger, because Billy Batson was a little kid. 
And so they thought that he was in full power that whole time, but he wasn't. That I figured it out and just takes him down. Well, that was pretty sweet. Uh, mine is a uh, is a Norman thing. It's Norman at the end, and not the very end. It's when he basically saves the world because he does save the world. Everything Superman saves. No, it's Norman, and and you know how he saves the world? He calls him Clark. He says Clark over and over again. Clark, don't. Clark, forgive yourself. They won't forgive you, Clark. He brings him back. He makes him into half human again. He brings back Clark Kent. Uh, he calls Clark back out of the monster that Superman had become after that. So that's my favorite moment. Anything else, Mr. Ortiz? Nope. Well, uh, that's it for uh, Comic Book Club. Uh, suck our dicks. If you listen to this whole thing, holy wow. shit. <laughs> Two hours long. Um, uh, anything from you, Mike? Uh, no, uh, if, if you have not read Kingdom Come, I don't know why you're listening to this. Yeah. Uh, if you, uh, have, haven't read it in a while, read it again. It's amazing. Uh, and you know, it's a fast read too. It's an incredibly fast read. But say, <laughs> say it, Mike, say it. Say what? It. You until know, next time? No, until next time. Keep fighting the geek fight. Good night. We're of such different schools. You and Clark, you rule by trust. I rely on fear. Then let's talk about what we're all most afraid of. Look at the lesson we just learned. Right now, the scales of world power are balanced, but still too easy to tip. Our child, more than any other, will need the leavening influence of a mortal man, a moral man, who we can count on. You're right about me. Trust is the center of my world. I don't know if that makes me an expert on it, but I know I trust you. Despite our differences over the years, I always have. Clark, thank you. It's settled then? It's settled. Come on, let's get out of here. You realize you've just handed me influence over the most powerful child in the world. I thought you agreed rather quickly. Have you thought of a name? Bruce is good. Mm, I was thinking of Jonathan. You both seem to be convinced it's a boy. The child of Superman and Wonder Woman. And Batman. Imagine what kind of kid he'll... She'll... Be. Battler for truth, justice, and a new American way. I can hardly wait to see it for myself. Let's go home and dream about the future.